Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapies. I'm really excited today to be welcoming Stan Crook, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorem, and the former chairman and CEO of Ionis. We're going to be talking today about nano-rare patients, business model behind rare diseases, as well as how Enlorem is looking to industrialize and scale the treatment of this population. Stan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could share perhaps a little bit about your background and all the amazing things you've accomplished and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I uh, grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I graduated from Butler University in pharmacy. I started out in aeronautical engineering, but quickly decided that you wouldn't want me to design an airplane. And then did my MD, PhD, house staff training at Baylor Medical School in Houston, where I joined the faculty actually while I was in medical school and stayed on the faculty for about 25 years. And in the meantime, I had the opportunity to build the first broad anti-cancer program in the industry in the first five years of my career, 1975 to 1980 at Bristol-Myers. And then I was recruited to be head of R&D at SmithKline-Beckman, which is now GSK. And then in 1989, largely in response to uh, what I felt was desperately needed if the industry was to actually serve patients better, I founded IONIS to pursue what at that time was a blank piece of paper, a technology that has come to be called RNA-targeted drug discovery or Anasense. And we persevered through many challenges, of course, and I'm proud to say that we made that technology happen. And it's great to see now many other organizations coming into that space, because I do think it's broadly enabling and it's going to be profoundly beneficial to patients, or is profoundly beneficial. I've been involved in not quite 25 drugs that are on the market and failed at another couple hundred. And I've remained an active scientist throughout my career. I was also on the faculty at Penn Medical School for some years. And I'm continuing to do the science that I'm interested in, having to do with molecular mechanisms by which ASOs produce their effects. Well, it's rare to be able to have someone of your stature and expertise in building a completely new novel modality. So we're really excited to have you as a guest, but then also hear a little bit about what you're building at Enlorem. Maybe before we get into the meat of the, the conversation on the topic of developing ASOs as a modality, in your experience, if you were to pick one thing that's the most difficult about developing and bring a new modality to the clinic, what would that one item be? Oh, it's time and failures and dollars. You asked for one, I gave you three, but that's what you get for having me as a guest, I guess. And this is an important conversation that I've had many times with many people. The industry is built on small molecule drug discovery. And if you think about chemical interactions, it's really information transfer processes. And drug interactions are just chemical interactions. You can see that with a small molecule binding to a protein, that you have an almost hopeless challenge. You're not, you don't have enough information in your drug to specify what it should do. And the proteins are so complex, we still don't understand the factors that really determine what proteins small molecule drugs work with. And that leads, of course, to the extraordinary inefficiency of the technology. And the best test of that is what's happened to prices of new drugs over the last 40, 50 years. So you ask, why aren't there more new platforms for drug discovery? And the issue is it's extraordinarily challenging. 
remember that most drugs fail. 99% of every product that we ever try to make in the industry fails. And that needs to change. But to build a platform for new drug discovery and then validate it means you have to build the platform and then you have to be successful in developing a number of drugs for it. So by my math, the first new modality to take its place alongside small molecules was monoclonal antibodies. That had about 30 companies and $30 billion in 30 years before it was understood what we could use monoclonal antibodies for and what we couldn't, and they were validated. It also had hundreds of academic labs. Gene therapy has been the topic for now 50 years, more like 40. And it's impossible to calculate how much has been invested, uh, certainly more than $50 billion. And I think it's still a long way from being at a place where we can say it's validated to be even broadly useful for genetic diseases, which are by definition rare. And a sense, technology or RNA targeted drug discovery, really for most of the time, we had to go it alone at IOMS. Everyone else gave up. It turned out to be a bargain. I think it was about 25 years and perhaps $4 billion before it became an accepted modality that people were willing to use broadly. And every one of these efforts is, is associated with multiple failures, multiple product failures. So there are few modalities for drug discovery and development because it's hard. And as people get excited about CRISPR and they get excited about this and that and the other, they almost always seem to forget time and cost and failure. It takes time, it takes billions of dollars, and it takes the will to stay in the game. It's not easy. Good to be excited about what the future may bring, but it's also important to be realistic about when that future may be realized for a patient. And that's a really salient advice and, and learnings, I think, for the audience. I think that tension of reality and optimism is particularly hard, I think, in the biotech sector, given the quantity of dollars and the strength of the stomach required to actually uh, stick with those highs and lows, I'd imagine. It is. And, you know, it is the most remarkable achievement of capitalism, American capitalism, that the biotech industry exists at all. And I was able to participate in that. And it's been quite an interesting journey. It's a long forgotten fact that when I founded IONIS, there were at least five other companies founded to pursue this technology and all of them gave up or failed. And that's common too. So be hopeful, but be realistic in your expectations of what it takes to bring a new modality to bear on patients who need it. And none of us who do this have anything but impatience. Impatience is a highly valued quality in my view, <laughs> but you have to be impatient in a chronic way. Yeah, wonderful. So, well, you know, coming back, I think, to the topic at hand, as part of Enlorem's mission, you're focusing specifically on nanorare patients. You know, I think this might be a term that's less frequently discussed. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that type of patient and what that means to you and how you sort of see ASOs specifically uh, playing a role in trying to provide them with a new treatment. Yes, important question. I think it's time for us to parse our patient populations more precisely. All of the systems that we have were built for the large diseases quite appropriately. And those systems have been sort of jerry-rigged to take care of rare patients. And then ultra-rare patients were observed, but never really well-defined. And so I think we need to parse these patient populations because I think their, their characteristics are different, their challenges are different, and I think the solution may be different. A nanorare patient I define as a patient who has a mutation that has a known worldwide prevalence of no more than 30 human beings. 
So this is the rarest, most isolated, most desperate patient population possible. Many of our patients at Enlorem are truly N of ones. They are unique. They have a unique mutation to them and them only. No other mutation like it has been discovered. So these patients then present an extraordinary dilemma in that they're extraordinarily rare. They're extraordinarily isolated because most of the mutations are de novo. They're spread around the world and they're hopeless. And anyone who's ever taken care of a patient or who actually is a human being knows that hopelessness is a terrible state for a human being. So it's a very different patient population. The next population up, in my mind, should be referred to as the micro-rare patient population. And that's, you know, 30 to say three or 400. And they present a different problem that I think has the potential to be solved by a quasi-commercial model. I'm working on that for those patients. But nano-rare patients are absolutely, they cannot be helped with a commercial model. It's not possible to even consider getting a commercial approval for a single patient. How do you conduct two controlled clinical trials in a single patient? And even if you could, so say you found 30, to make economic sense of it, you'd have to charge these families many millions of dollars a year. And I believe that's wrong. And I think we can surely do better than that. And so in Lorem is a nonprofit with the goal of discovering, developing, and providing experimental ASO treatments to these patients for free for life. And every one of these patients that we deal with represents a new drug discovery and development program. And I'm sure your listeners know that the average time to develop a drug, not to discover it, just to develop it, is 17 years. And the average cost is $3.5 billion now. And so what we're attempting has never been tried. It truly is a stunning idea. When I first realized that the technology that we had created might be capable of this, I spent a few months just you know, checking the numbers and examining my sanity because it seems so impossible. It's not impossible. We're doing it. But it has to be a nonprofit model. So we're now two and a half years old, and I feel we've made really extraordinary progress. And I think that reflects the desperate need of these patients. And it also has to be scalable. Whatever you do here has to be scalable because even though each patient may be unique, we know that there are millions of these patients. And the more human genomes are sequenced, the more of these patients we're going to find. So these present a unique problem. They need unique solutions. And Lorem is creating a path and a model that as other technologies mature to the place where they can be used here, we hope they will follow our model. You know, every step that we take is a step into the unknown. That's where I've lived all my career. So that's not a problem. <laughs> well, you're truly an entrepreneur for an entrepreneur's heart, right? Being so comfortable in the ambiguous and also being comfortable challenging status quos. I'm curious, you know, in the context of this endeavor, it seems like given the exciting work that, you know, you've pioneered at Ionis, you're now sort of pivoting away from necessarily the scientific modality and more to the business model of drug development. Would love to sort of hear a little bit more about how you've seen the evolution of the business model of biotech and what you think maybe that's going to look like, say, in the next 20 years. Yeah, happy to do that. But I, I don't think I'm pivoting to the business side of things. And Lorem is all science. And the truth of the matter is, I founded Ionis to create technology. And I built a business to do that. And that's probably why our stock never hit 200. People know that. <laughs> I'm really just taking advantage of the technology we created to do something that can't be done commercially. 
And it's astonishing what we're learning already in this process. And really, all we do is you can think of us as a two and a half year old biotech company with, I think we've accepted 70 new drug discovery and development programs, 20 drugs in development, and about five to eight that will enter new clinical trials this year. Really, it's just doing more of what I did with a somewhat different focus. And, you know, biotechnology is a truly remarkable event in the history of economics and the history of the world. And the single greatest revolution of biotechnology is financing. I was recruited while I was president of R&D at SmithKline to many biotech companies, many of the early ones to be CEO. And I didn't believe it was financially achievable. And so I said, no, but I didn't reckon with the power of American capitalism. And what biotech has done then is demonstrate that a decentralized model of innovation with people of widely divergent risk tolerance is a far better solution to finding novel platforms and drugs than was the fully integrated pharmaceutical companies that I grew up in. So in that sense, it's, um, it really truly is a pioneering financial endeavor. And, you know, people who I credit with getting that underway include Fred Frank, who recently uh, passed away, Stelios Papadopoulos, and, and they were all bankers. They were all investment bankers. And if you focus on what the biotech industry has done that's unique, it is responsible for the new modalities that we have. None of those could have happened in a large company. I've been intrigued to be a part of the history of it and also intrigued to be sort of a chronicler of, of the history of it, uh, because it's really quite remarkable. It's hard to imagine it happening at another time in another place than in the United States, and it's capitalism at, it, at its very best. I think it also highlights you know, the opportunity that comes in when you have a distributed network of participants, whether it be from a funding perspective, but also from an innovation standpoint. I think you need both sides of that marketplace to get to where we are today. Would you agree? I think every study that I know, my own experience says that innovation happens best in organizations that are four to 500 people, not much larger. And so a decentralized innovation process coupled to a network of potential investors with varying risk tolerances simply works better than concentrating all the decisions into a single person who I used to be when I was president of R&D. And I knew when I was making these decisions that I wasn't doing the best thing, that there had to be a solution, both technologically and organizationally, that would work better for innovation than that model. And Biotech has proven that is absolutely true. I was president of R&D. I had 8,000 people working for me. And I had my own lab as well. And we were looking at Anisense. And I came to the conclusion, there's no hope I could keep that alive for 30 years. And so I founded Ionis. And I'm fond of telling this somewhat apocryphal tale. There's probably some truth to it. I told the venture investors at the time that nothing was known about the technology. It was almost certain to fail. And it would be 20 years and $2 billion before I knew, would you like to invest? I wasn't quite that blunt, but I certainly understood that that's what I was asking. And I only started with $5.2 million total. Nobody would start a company with that today in a garage. And over those decades, I think we raised all in maybe as much as $10 billion. And that is the power of a big dream. Absolutely. You know, I think the other piece that I'm personally interested in, you know, through Vibe and broader technology is how can we start to even extend the decentralization of that financing to a much broader pool of participants? 
you know, I think one thing we could probably both agree on is that even today, we've probably seen some element of conservatism in terms of where we're investing, whether it be in a pharmacist perspective or a VC standpoint, and perhaps enabling both liquidity of those sorts of investments, along with opening it up to a much broader pool of participants, hopefully will unleash more innovation thereafter. Yeah, my biggest disappointment with biotech is all the successful companies immediately became fully integrated pharmaceutical companies after demonstrating that that model is not good for innovation. And so I do believe that new models are needed as well and have worked to pioneer that as well. Amazing. You know, one piece that we hadn't touched upon yet is also importance of regulatory collaboration and the FDA in these new sort of approaches that you're taking. We'd love to sort of hear how you've been collaborating with them and sort of their view and guidance on nano-rare patient populations. Let me put it in a little bit of context for you, if you don't mind. It'd take a minute. But I uh, realized that the technology we had created was now efficient and cost-effective enough in our shop because we have 30 years plus of experience in automation tied to AI and whatnot that make the discovery process rapid and almost free. And so I realized that in 2017, and I spent the next three years really putting the rest of the pieces together. And the single most important question to address first was, where would I get the patients? And it's not just the patients. The patients have to be fully genotyped and phenotyped, and we have to have an investigator capable and willing to take care of that patient under an investigator-initiated IND, an experimental agent in an institution that's ready to do that. And so I was introduced to the Undiagnosed Disease Network, which your listeners should know about if they don't, because it's done incredibly important work and pioneered really an understanding of how large a fraction of patients go through their life without a diagnosis and how damaging it is to them and how costly it is to the healthcare system. So we built a partnership with UDN right away. Interestingly, though, only about a third of our patients have come from UDN sites, which is great news. And it says that all these other personalized medicine centers that have really been spawned by the UDN are coming online and helping these patients. So the next step then was we certainly couldn't exist and do what we do commercially to be able to develop these drugs and give them away for free. And so I spent most of 2019 in discussions with the senior people of the FDA and then various other forums. And I was thrilled when I wrote the leaders of the drug division, remember that we're supervised by the drug division, not the biologics division, which has traditionally been a much more conservative and demanding part of the FDA. But I was thrilled when they responded very promptly and very positively. And so at Lightspeed, for the FDA, they've issued special guidance. It's unique. It's only for ASOs because ASOs right now are the only technology can do this broadly. And it's unique for these patients. And that special guidance supports entering clinical trials with vastly less preclinical information than we normally have for drugs in development. And to a large extent, we got most of what we suggested to the FDA in each of the guidances. There's still work to do in, in finding ways to make this more efficient. So the guidance reflects the needs of the nanorare patient and how desperate those needs are and the recognition by, I think, most of the people involved that the the non-commercial model must be pioneered here. And certainly I thank the FDA for their efforts because we couldn't do this without their support. If you thought if and Lauren was a for-profit institution, do you think they'd be as collaborative or do you think that the purity of the mission helped? 
Absolutely not. It, it is absolutely the purity of the mission. And because of my long association with Iona's, one of the things I had to work very hard at was to demonstrate that we were independent and that we, this was not some sort of ploy to make money for Iona's. It helped that my wife and I have given a lot of money to, to Enlore. Yes, it was a big challenge. And no, no, of course not. This is a guidance that reflects confidence in the technology, the desperate need of these patients, and the fact that all of us involved feel a nonprofit model probably is the only solution, certainly today. It makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the things that inspires me about the work that you're doing at Enlorum is the scale at which you're operating as well as you aspire to operate. Can you help us understand what some of the learnings are and how you started to industrialize this approach? and how you sort of see it extending in the coming years? Let's step back to the technology for just a little bit because everything depends and is enabled by the technology. Here's what you need to actually do what we're doing out of a drug discovery technology. It needs to be extremely rapid. It needs to be extraordinarily cost-effective. It needs to be efficient. And you need a technology that creates chemical classes where the drugs just differ in sequence. So our drugs are oligonucleotides, that is the building blocks of the language of DNA and RNA. Your information storage system is the simplest possible language. It's four characters. It's, it's, it's as complicated as the Morse code, dot, dot, dash, dash, and it's understood. And we use that. And that's why, in a sense, is what we're able to do. And within a chemical class, all the drugs behave very similarly. So we begin the process learning from our past successes and our failures. And we can use that information to guide dose, dose frequency, the kinds of patients we should treat, the kinds of patients we shouldn't treat, and so on. Without that, there would be no possibility of doing this. And at IONIS, in fact, we published integrated safety databases that take all the safety information we have from non-human primates through all controlled clinical trials for all the chemical classes that we developed. And we have several. Those are available. They're available to regulatory agencies as well. All of that then is necessary to do this. So that was all in place. Otherwise, there's no hope. And so armed with that, then I felt that we had the wherewithal to do what we needed to do and a technology mature enough and well enough understood that we would expose these patients only to prudent risk. Once you take that step, and you have to understand in our industry, to develop a drug, we have to expose patients to risk. And that colors everything we do. It intensifies the emotions around decisions because a wrong decision could hurt someone. And here, we're going into the clinic with very little preclinical information. Well, that then puts a very high premium on being as high quality at every step in the way as possible. And the other plus of Anasense is it's eminently scalable. I knew when I started that there are going to be millions of these patients. And so our 10-year strategic plan has us treating many thousands of patients. You need a technology that's scalable enough to do that and affordable. So all of that was in place because of the technology. And then the regulations allowed us to perform this in a fashion that's rapid enough and cost-effective enough that we can give drugs away. And it has to be rapid. Because the nanorare patient, average time from symptom onset today to diagnosis according to UDN data is eight years. Vast majority of nanorare patients are never diagnosed. They watch their life erode. They live with limits that they don't understand, and they die, never knowing why they are singled out for that fate. That's awful. 
and all of them go through multiple diagnoses, multiple misreferrals, often multiple mistreatments that do harm. And so by the time they arrive to us today, they're well advanced in their disease, they're desperate, and they're really sick. And in fact, the worst days are the days when we find a patient that we can't get to fast enough and that patient dies. We've already experienced that. And so all of that is playing into this. And obviously, one of the things I hope to do over the long term is be the tip of the spear that drives genomic sequencing into newborn screening. That's where we have to go. That's the only time we're going to know the prevalence of these mutations, what are the characteristics of the mutations, and the only way we can get to patients before they become so sick that we can't really help them anyway. And, you know, that's beginning to happen around the world. It's not happening as rapidly in the U.S. as it should, but in other parts of the world, this is being taken seriously. All of that has to be conducted, and it's extremely important that we expose these patients only to prudent risk. That puts an incredible premium on the risk-benefit decision of what patient to treat and why. And if we help that patient, is it going to matter that patient? And so we put a system in place that assures that that is well-considered. We have a committee that I call the Access to Treatment Committee. It's made up of all the types of expertise and diseases and genetics and then the technology. That The advice from that committee is important to me because I have to make the final decision whether a patient is to be treated. And we never begin without having agreeing with the physician and the patient in general what should be the primary treatment goal and how we're going to measure it. And we have to use just clinically validated measures because we can't validate a biomarker in a single patient. And then what is our secondary treatment goal? And are there exploratory goals? All that gets laid out so that we're confident that we know what patient we're treating, why we're treating it, and if we're successful, that patient is going to be meaningfully better. It will matter to the family. These diseases don't destroy patients. They destroy families. And we have to be aware of all that. And then the next step is to be sure that the ASO is of highest quality. And really, today, that's only practical at Ionis and and Enlorn. We're the only place, really, that has these systems. And In fact, I've expressed this many times. I'm very concerned about academic investigators who, the technology now sounds simple. These are complex drugs. And academic investigators who don't have the tools to discover the best antisense drug are making them, and it worries me. And then how do you measure whether you're making a benefit in a single patient? And what I've done is that while it takes about 15 months or so to get the ASO discovered, ready, and to the patient, we work with the physician and the family to collect a natural history. And then in the first year of treatment, we compare the trajectory during the pretreatment to that. And I think because it's incredibly important that we learn maximally from every one of these patients, and there's so much to learn. We owe them this. And what we're learning will ramify across all diseases because it has to do with the interplay of genetics with environment creating disease or health. All of that had to be thought out before we started and it's in place and it's working. I'm very pleased to say that. And I think that's really important for these patients and families to hear that there's a professional process run by professional drug discoverer and developers who are sensitive to the fact that this is risky. And, be, and are committed to exposing these patients only to prudent risk in the service of meaningful benefit. I'm committed to that. We have a bias to treat. If we think we can help, we treat. We can't fix all mutations. We can't address null mutations, for example. 
And I've limited our purview to five organs and three routes of deliveries because these are the ones I know the best. Yes, ASOs work in other tissues, but I don't know as much about them yet. And so we're limited to the central nervous system with intrathecal administration, the eye directly injecting in the eye, the lung with aerosol, and then subcutaneously, the liver and the kidney. And so we have limits, but I look at it not about the patients I can't help today. It's about patients I can. It's about the families who we can help. And we're able to say yes to about 40% of the applications we get. I thought when I founded in Lorem that, especially with COVID, we started in January of 2020, if you can imagine that, with COVID at its peak, that we'd be, at this stage, maybe we'd have 10 applications and maybe we'd be treating one. We had the opportunity to help treat 14 patients before in Lorem came to being. And the 11 patients treated by Neil Schneider with FUS ALS, which is the most aggressive ALS, the data there are really exciting and compelling. And it's really remarkable what we've been able to do. So it can be done and it can be successful. And I think right now we've received 155 or 160 applications and approved for treatment um, 70. We expect to treat five to eight new patients this year, uh, more than 20 next year. And over the next 10 years, that will swell to thousands. And obviously, the demand has greatly outstripped our capacity. And so we've been scrambling to raise the money and hire the people and build the organization and be sure that the organization is of the highest quality. And we're getting that done. And what we've accomplished, I think, is really just a testament to the power of the idea and the value that this could bring. So we're off to a great start. We still have to prove that what we're doing is sustainable, but there's always something left to prove. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that's the joy of it. People who attend the Access to Treatment Committee describe it as being genetics, rare disease, grand rounds every meeting because you're just seeing mutations you've never seen before with phenotypes that are, you know, different from what the main mutation might be in a disease. And so there's going to be an extraordinary opportunity And that too is important. These patients should be treated respectfully enough that we learn what they can teach us while we're trying to help them. And so I think this is something that all your listeners should be interested in. It could be your family tomorrow. And we certainly love to have your interest and support. And for the physicians listening, if you have a patient you think we could help, we want him. Amazing. Well, certainly uh, incredibly inspirational words. And you mentioned this sort of topic of sustainability over time. I have a feeling that you hope and intend for Enlorum to live on long beyond you and, and your team. How do you think that that happens? Is it through donations? Is it through PRVs? What's sort of the mechanism that you feel is going to help ensure that uh, Enlorum continues to serve its mission over time? Well, today we're personally nonprofit. And so it's a matter of support that we can garner from donors. The response in the industry has been remarkable. And Lorem shows the heart of the industry that I know. It's far too rare that the true heart of our industry is shown. But uh, anyone who works in the industry knows that people in the industry care about the patient. This is the heart. So the industry has responded. We have numerous biotech partners. We have essentially every vendor that it services the industry is either giving us free service or prices that are below cost. And then we've been successful in raising quite a bit of, you know, just money from donors. And most of the biotech companies and the sponsors have also donated dollars as well. Of course, I didn't know until I started 
But based on our progress, I'm very confident, really, that I can make this sustainable just as a nonprofit model. Over time, as we innovate and learn and create new medicines and so on, some of those, like Fuss ALS, Fuss ALS, we thought there were two twins who had it. <laughs> but now we know there's a commercial opportunity here, and Ionis is developing that drug commercially. So those things will happen, and we'll take advantage of those to add additional funding to the organization. And I'm building an organization that is sustainable and can last long after I decide to walk away. Certainly wasn't exactly what I planned to do at this stage in my life or career, but these patients need me, and so I'm doing it. Well, every day in the industry has been gratifying. But this, for me, is very much like returning to the practice of medicine, which I still miss. And because it's so intimate, most of the time we know our patients, their names and so on, because they're on the internet. You know, in the industry, you have to work in the abstract. You're not allowed to know these names. And you're talking about tens of thousands of millions of patients. This is not. This is that intimate one-on-one joy of service that I felt as a physician and have missed. For me, there's a term that Jefferson used to describe the Lewis and Clark expedition which is the first federally funded research program, $3 million in 1800, <laughs> a lot of money. And he called it the core of discovery. And that's what I think NLR is. It's core of discovery for the mind and the heart. Certainly has been uh, that for me. Wonderful. Well, we're really grateful that you're pursuing this mission and certainly wish you all the best and hope to have you on again, perhaps as you've had more success and more learnings that you can share with us and, and the audience. So really grateful again, Stan, for having you on and best of luck. Thank you so much. Yes. And before I go, I want to tell people to come to our website. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's designed for the nanorare patients to create a community based on knowledge and caring. And it's been a pleasure to talk about the labor of my heart, my brain. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.